morning's sermon text is Luke 21, 25 through 38. And I'm going to be honest with you up front, this is a difficult text. Let's read. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. Now the earth the stress of nations and perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man in a cloud with power, with great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness for the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple. There was the 
the dots were painted on white, the inlays rather, it was, it was very poor guitar. Um, I'm thankful they got it for me, but because of this, when I was first learning, I uh, had a lot of difficulty. It was really hard to make the shape of basic chords. For one, my fingers were not used to making weird shapes like this. For others, it just hurt. The second issue, though, of course, was because it was cheap, it wasn't set up well. The strings were really far off the fretboard. I didn't realize that's not how a guitar should be shaped or should be set up. I didn't have the tools to fix it. I didn't even have the right understanding or knowledge to fix this. I just thought, this is hard. And oftentimes, when the things are hard, we're prone to give up on them. Yet in the midst of me learning to play on this poorly made $100 guitar with the strings too far off the fretboard and cheap tutors that took way too long to get the string up to the right pitch and often would skip and slip and make even more issues. In addition to that, I didn't even have a good guitar tutor. I didn't have a guitar tutor at all at the time. But yet I was determined to play. I was determined to learn how to play guitar. So I pressed on without the right tools which means that I developed bad habits. In addition to that, I didn't have good teachers. I didn't take any lessons. At first, I had a VHS that was just a basic learner to play guitar, and it taught me how to play. He's got the whole world in his hands and something else, which required, I think, only two chords, G and C. But the video was really outdated. It was from like the mid-90s, which many of you doesn't seem like that long ago. But it became hard to follow because it was just not good quality. And so what I ended up doing is, instead of taking real lessons and formal lessons, I learned from friends. We'd also learn from other friends rather than taking lessons. Which means their bad habits transferred on to my bad habits. And that I learned their bad techniques as well. And all of this really just helped me continue to want to learn, but learning things poorly. And so bad habits and bad teachers turned me into a pretty poor guitar player for quite a while. And so even with my zeal for wanting to play, I still wasn't very good. And this often translates really well to our theology, and especially to eschatology or our study of end times. We often want to know what Jesus said. We should. We should cherish the words of Christ. And we often want to make sense of it. Yet we often come to the conversation with the wrong tools and the wrong tutors. If we look to these texts and simply make our best guesses and we ignore any other related texts, if we completely ignore the genre of eschatology, or excuse me, the genre of apocalypse literature, and we try to make our best guesses, if we ignore history, if we ignore historical understanding of texts, we can come out of these texts with a really bad understanding of the text. We can make assumptions end up leading to really bizarre interpretations. And even if we only listen to one side, if we get four teachers who malign those who disagree with them, if we hear someone from one perspective who says that everyone with any opinion other than mine is foolish and dumb and don't listen to them, and we never listen to them, we have a problem. Now, there certainly are people we shouldn't listen to. But a lot of times I've seen something where someone will seek to describe another opinion other than theirs, and they do it poorly and uncharitably. And that can happen with bad teachers. 
and especially if we only read for arguments of others making those other perspectives. And so in all of this, we need to make sure we've got the right tools. We need to make sure we've got as much of a view of as we can. And we need to try to have good teachers, which means we also need to try to look at it from multiple different perspectives. And that's kind of what I'm going to hope today, is to provide two or three different perspectives, perspectives of this text. And I can promise you, I will not solve all the issues of this text today. Because upon looking at it first, it almost seems like it's pretty straightforward, but there's a few issues we're going to have to look through today. And again, before we really get into it, I'm going to state that whether it looks like it or not, this is a difficult text. And so if you leave today more confused than you arrived, then on the one hand, I'm sorry, but on the other hand, that is okay. Eschatology, or the study of end times, is a really difficult conversation. We must, we must approach it with grace and with patience for one another. There's lots of various opinions. And this is one of those conversations that people are very quickly to call others' names, and sometimes quickly to call other people heretics just because they disagree, even if that person is within the realms of orthodoxy. We must be cautious. But at the same point, it's also quick to get outside of the realm of orthodoxy. There's one scholar who's done a lot of work in this that recently has begun to say things that are not within the realm of orthodoxy. I won't leave his name out of this. But we have to be careful that our interpretations are within what history is determined as appropriate with what Jesus and the rest of the scripture are actually saying and communicating. So we should not be so quick to anathematize people. But we should also be careful to know what is actually in the scriptures and in accordance. And in this conversation, the bare minimum of what we must agree on is that Jesus is going to return. His date, in doing so, we can disagree on that and still have fellowship. Even to the degree the manner of how it's going to occur, we can disagree on and still have fellowship. We must agree that Jesus is returning, that Jesus is God incarnate, he died on the cross, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and has promised that he's going to come again. That is the bare minimum of what we must agree on in this conversation. In addition to that, we must agree that Jesus and what Jesus has said is true and faithful and will come to pass. We talked about last week. And even as we are looking at this text, part of the issue is that people do not necessarily even agree on what it's about. For reasons that we'll get to in a few moments, there are there are a few different perspectives, one of which is that the events of this text, much like the events of last week, some have said that they're all fulfilled in 70 AD. Others have said there's a divide in this text, and some of these events are going to be fulfilled at a later date. And so the first perspective would argue that the events of this manner are described in a figurative manner, whereas the other perspective will describe that the date and the timing is in a figurative manner. And so, this would be starting in 25 AD, Jesus begins to speak of an event to come that did not occur in 70 AD. That would be the argument that the dating is figurative. This would describe the time markers, so the meaning of generation, or another time of immediately, or at this time. And this, at some point, something's figurative. It's either the time, or it's the events. We probably won't solve that today, but I'm going to hope to help you understand and look at this to understand maybe what it is Jesus is talking about. 
But yet at the same point, we've got, is the time figurative? Is the date figurative? Or is it both? Is there truth in both of these things occurring? And what I mean by that is that, because some do believe it's both, it's not uncommon that we see in biblical prophecy that it finds itself in the near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. So we see this specifically in the book of Isaiah. In some of these messianic texts, there's a prophecy that's told that comes to fulfillment within the book of Isaiah, but then we see an even greater fulfillment happen in the person of Jesus. That could be what's occurring here. There could be a partial fulfillment in 70 AD, and then a further fulfillment at the return of Christ. However, what I hope is not the case in today's sermon. It's, it's not my intent to get you to completely agree with me on whatever my perspective is. Whether you come from an eschatological perspective that believes in a um, premillennial return of Christ, or a historical premillennial return of Christ, or an amillennial interpretation, or a postmillennial interpretation, or if you have no idea what any of those things mean, my goal is not to persuade you to a perspective in this. As much as my goal is that you leave this morning seeing Jesus as all-glorious and eagerly awaiting his second coming with hope and joyful obedience to his commands. Amen. And it's really easy to read these texts about the second coming or about the end times and get really confused or really discouraged or really scared. And there's a good chance that we'll all leave a little more confused today. And even though much of the language of today's text is difficult, and even though it's rather somber, I mean, we are discussing the wrath of God in this. And the earth falling apart and stars falling out of the sky. But I hope to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus actually gives several encouragements to his disciples. This is, oddly enough, an encouraging text. Jesus gives three specific exhortations that we'll look at today, and I hope those exhortations leave you with hope, even in the midst of a confusing text. And the lens by which Jesus gives his disciples to view his apocalypse is not one of confusion or of despair, but it's a lens of hope. And yet contrast that to how we typically think of apocalypse. We think of the word apocalypse, we often think of movies that are the complete and utter destruction of everything, um, or even just a supervillain trying to conquer the world. That, culturally, that's what we think of as apocalypse. We think of it as being a terrible thing. But the biblical definition of the word apocalypse is revealing. The word apocalypse simply means things to be revealed. That moves back to the original word in the Greek. And it just it means things to be revealed. So originally, the word of apocalypse meant the revealing of what God's doing, the revealing of Christ, the revealing of his second coming. So for us as Christians, when we hear the word apocalypse, we should have joy and excitement, not terror, not fear. We shouldn't let Hollywood take over the definition of a good word. Because this manner, the Bible leads us to think of this topic with hope, with eager expectation of the risen King Jesus. And in a demonstration of this hopeful outlook, we're going to look at these three exhortations of Jesus. I'm going to give them to you ahead of time. So the first of which is going to be strengthen up, or straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. 
That's verse 28. That's the first exhortation that Jesus gives. The second being, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's verse 32. And then the third one Jesus gives is to guard yourselves and stay awake. It's in verses 34 and 36. So in the section with this first exhortation, we look at verse 25 through verses 27. And in verses 25 through 27, we're given these astrological signs. Mark and Luke spell these out a little bit differently and a little more descriptively than Luke does. Though the message of all three synoptic gospels is the same in this. But yet both of these refer to a sign of the stars. And in Matthew and Mark, the stars are falling out of the sky. These events are cosmological in nature, so they're relating to planets and stars and the sun and the moon and space, really. Rather than what was said in the previous verses, which is terrestrial in nature, or it's on the earth is what's occurring in the events preceding this in the verse. Which is why some have seen this as being a natural divide in the text. That what was said previously referred to the earth, but what's referring to the next part is in space or in the sky. And so this has led many scholars to say, well, this is a separation. This is Jesus speaking of a different event. And this is where we get a little bit first of debate and kind of difference in what's going on in this text. Whereas others see these things as connected to the destruction of 70 AD. As I mentioned before, uh, this was the, the interpretation that would say that generation, the word generation is figurative. And yet others have concluded that due to the historical events, recorded in the first century, going back to the historians of mentioned last week, Tacitus and Josephus, they would see these events as being fulfilled in what happens in 25 and following. So in this instance, the understanding of these signs is figurative. This would be the instances such as the falling, of the stars falling out of the sky being fulfilled in a comet that was going through the sky between 60 AD and 70 AD. And so they would read that as being this comet being an example of a star falling out of the sky. Which I would say makes sense, though isn't necessarily what we normally think of. And at the same point, which hearing that you might wonder, well, in verse 27, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. And so in that, they would say that this isn't the literal second coming of Christ. These people still believe in a literal second coming of Christ. They just don't think that's what this text is about. And I'll get in a moment to a scholar who you can research and look this up, and it's a well-known person. Um, so bear with me for a minute on that one. And so what they would say is, instead, this coming of the Son of Man is an act of judgment. And it's not so much that Jesus is returning as he's promised he will do and he will do. In this moment, what they would say is this coming of the Son of Man in the cloud is an act of judgment, and that is the fulfillment and the continuation of this destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And so all of that, from this perspective, is connected, is connected and carried through. And so either way, though, regardless of this interpretation, we can all agree, whether you think or whether scholars think that the events are figurative or whether the timeline is figurative, what we can agree is that Jesus is describing something of great terror. And yet following this, and let me read that for a moment. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. 
for the powers in heaven will be shaken. So in this, Jesus is describing some pretty severe signs. Um, one of them being that people are fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And these are signs of great terror. People in whatever circumstance, whether they're seeing this in 70 AD, whether they're seeing this in a time yet to come, or whether it's both, these are events of extreme terror. People will be incredibly afraid. And yet even in the midst of seeing signs that will lead some, lead some to this crippling form of terror, the disciples are told something quite remarkable in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads. The focus of these events in this text is not calamity for the Christian, but rather the focus is that redemption is drawing near. And if I'm being honest, that's something that really perplexes me about modern American Christianity. We have a book that demonstrates that God is incredibly faithful to his people. And that in this book, we see what God is doing in history, and how even in calamity and in tragedy, God has made things work exactly according to his plan. And yet far too often it seems that I see Christians who see things that don't go the way they'd like them to, and they're running around like chicken little, screaming that the sky is falling. And even though this text tells us the sky literally is going to fall, what does Jesus say? Straighten up. Raise up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. The attitude of Chicken Little is not the attitude of the Christian. Whether Christ returns first or whether he calls you home at the end of your life, you have a sealed redemption to be found in Christ Jesus. All who place their faith in Jesus have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 23, Paul writes that we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have a hope because even when the sky is falling, our redemption is drawing near. That redemption is found in Christ alone. And so we have the same outlook of hope here in verse 28, regardless really of where we see 25 through 27 occurring. And then in 29 through 33, Jesus tells this parable of a fig tree. And that's what leads us to our second exhortation. And he tells us a parable describing what the events of summer look like. When the fig trees and other trees begin producing leaves, they know that summer is near. And Jesus uses this to communicate that they ought to look for similar signs to know what the events that he's speaking of are near. And contrary to many other parables, the meaning of this parable is not hard to understand. A lot of times we see parables and it's like, what are we doing? But in this instance, this parable is a lot easier to understand than the whole rest of the text, which is quite unusual. And yet, we get this one pretty easily. I mean, we know when summer's coming. I mean, for us, when everything starts dying, when it gets crazy hot, there's no rain, people start disappearing for a few weeks at a time just to escape the heat. And I'm sure as we're here longer, I'll get some more Arizona-specific ideas of what summer will look like. But I at least know that summer, whether it's California or Arizona, is hot. Everything's dead. Everything's dry. We try to stay inside as much as possible. 
Try to keep our cars in the shade, and if not, we find things to put over our steering wheels and chairs, or our seats, to make sure we don't get burned. We understand summer. And at the same point, that's what Jesus is saying here. And it's probably the case that Jesus gave them an easy parable, because everything out around it was pretty difficult. And from this parable, we understand specific signs that will indicate the coming of the Son of Man. Yet the difficult thing about this parable is interpreting the signs. Specifically in Relations 31 to 33. Let me read those. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not take or, excuse me, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So verse 31, Jesus states that when they see these things happening, when they see that summer is coming. The kingdom of God is near. And this is another way for Luke to refer to the coming of the Son of Man. So earlier when he says the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and here when he says the kingdom of God is near, he's referring to the same thing, but using different language. And even so, in the third part we look at, he uses, again, he references to stand before the Son of Man. He's referring to the same event in all three of these sections we're looking at. And it's when they begin to see these signs, the disciples will know... What Jesus has told them is about to happen. And yet, this part governs the entire text. So even going back to verse 5, when, he sees the, when they see the signs that he mentions from the destruction of the temple and relating to the persecution, relating to Jerusalem, those are the signs he's referring to as well. So there's signs going from 5 through 28. He's referring that these signs are going to be an indication of the temple falling. These signs are going to be an indication of persecution. As I mentioned, a lot of the persecution we see as an outline from the book of Acts, it seems. And then even so, the destruction of Jerusalem, those signs are all indicative of those events. But he's also referring to this event here relating to the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, when you're seeing these things happen, this is what's going to be the case. But then following this, he's also saying, do not despair. In verse 32, this is where we get really the quote-unquote problem verse of the text. This is what divides the two different perspectives. Whether you think this is about the second coming of Christ, or whether you think this is all about 70 AD, this word generation is really the messy word. Because you have to figure out, did Jesus by generation mean the people he was speaking with right there, or did Jesus mean something else? In verse 32... The question becomes, who is he speaking with? Who is generation? Now, keep in mind, the original question that Jesus was asked is, when will we see these things come to pass? And that's when Jesus says, the answer here is, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. So a very upfront reading, we can almost immediately think he's just talking to the people who are in front of him. Because that's the clearest answer and almost the clearest reading. But we have to really kind of ask the question. This is a silly way of asking it. Does it mean this generation that Jesus is speaking with? Or does it not mean the generation of people he's speaking with? Does Jesus mean something else? And within the realm of apocalyptic literature, even within the realm of uh, literature that was being written at the time around Jesus, generation can mean something else. So that makes it difficult. Because even in things that we see in the writings of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, generation means something a little more broad than just 
the people right in front of them. So we have to make some decisions. And ultimately, our understanding of this text kind of hinges upon how we define generation. The most plain understanding of the word would be exactly what we think of, the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. But if we look back to 25 through 27, the question becomes, did these things happen? And the question becomes, yes or no? And if those things didn't happen, generation has to mean something else. If they did happen in 70 AD, then generation can just mean generation. And scholars have fought over this, and scholars are divided over this. I guarantee you, in this room, we have different opinions. Whether I have a different opinion than you, or whether you guys have different opinions among yourselves. And let me say, that's okay. That, that is okay. We can still fellowship together. We can still rejoice in the gospel together. We can still serve one another. We can still serve others together. And we can still beautifully engage in Christian fellowship and service to one another. We don't have to agree on this. That is okay. And I think there's even beauty in us disagreeing because in our disagreements and our conversations, we can edify one another and help to lead each other to maturity and understanding the text better. Though at some point, we will all agree. In eternity, we'll know what Jesus has done. We'll know where this applies. And there's wonder in that too. But if we take generation to mean not the people in front of them, then this is a loaded question. Is Jesus wrong? Well, no, of course not. So then we have to understand this. If, if we conclude that generation is being used in a figurative sense, then we can understand this one way. If we conclude that the signs are being used in a figurative sense, then we can conclude one way. And so it, it's confusing. It really is. If it's about 70 AD and all these things have taken place, then it can't be about the second coming of Christ because Jesus has not returned yet. And let me say that the people who would say this would say that the second coming is still going to happen. They still believe in that. At least some of them do. The ones who don't would be outside the realm of orthodoxy. That's where we don't have fellowship with those people. But if it's not about 70 AD, and it's about the second coming of Christ, then we have to understand that generation means something different than just the people who Jesus was speaking with. So, what if it's not about the second coming of Christ? What if it What if it's just about God bringing judgment upon the people that are in front of him? And some have argued that with good reason. They argue that this text found its fulfillment all of it in 70 AD from verse 5 through verse 36. And they've got there's good arguments there, but there's also good reason to think that it doesn't just apply to the fall of Jerusalem. And one of those descriptions we see in the Synoptic Gospels don't seem to match the events of the fall of Jerusalem. And one person who's a proponent of the idea that all of this has been fulfilled and specifically does this work with Matthew 24 and with Mark 13 is Dr. R.C. Sproul. Um, he lays out a very convincing argument concerning the idea that this text primarily refers to the events of 70 AD. Um, and for reference, if you want to look into this and trace out and see what he does, you can actually find through the Ligonier website or YouTube channel, he's got sermons on Mark 13. He does a really good job of showing how it lines up in history. Interestingly, what I hope to do a little differently, though, than he does today, is show what this text does means for us today, regardless of where we line on this. But 
Sproul points out to the statements concerning the sun and moon and how they can refer to the star hanging over Jerusalem for the period of a year that I mentioned last week. He also points to the comet that I mentioned earlier on comet crossing the sky as giving an instance of the stars falling out of the sky. And in this instance, he's one of the people who would take generation to refer to the disciples who were physically in front of him. But one caution, regardless of where you stand and how you're going to say what generation means, is we cannot only define generation a way to make it less awkward. We cannot simply say, I don't know what to do with this, so generation has to mean something else. We have to have good reason for defining it that way. And if your starting place is Jesus can't be wrong, so how can we make sure that we think he's right? That's a decent starting place. If we've established that Jesus is a good prophet and a right prophet and a true prophet, then we have to trust his words. But we have to have good reason for defining things a certain way. And scholars, pastors, and commentators have been pretty divided on what these things mean, and they have been for centuries, really. One commentator wrote this, and after fighting with this topic for several years myself, and then this last week especially, I think this is one of the most helpful comments I've read. Since Easter, all belong to the generation of the eschaton. Not just Easter a few weeks ago, but referring to the resurrection of Christ. And so in this idea, generation refers to anyone following the resurrection of Jesus. And thus the idea would be that we've been in the last days since Christ's resurrection. But even in the mess of all of this, Jesus gives a promise. And it's a delightful promise. Jesus states that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. The things which he has prophesied and told of here are more certain than heaven and earth. If we cannot trust what Jesus has said here, then we cannot trust Jesus. So on the flip side, if we can trust Jesus, we can trust his words here, even if we don't fully understand them. But more than that, Jesus is saying his words are more certain than our own reality. That the, he that the heavens above us and the, feet, the earth below our feet. And at times it may seem unbelievable to think that the things that are written here are going to happen. Or maybe it's unbelievable to think that they already did happen. Or that they happened exactly as described in 78 but if we can trust that Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust that he is right about the other things that he said as well. And then Jesus' final exhortation is that they might guard themselves. And I think this is a really important exhortation for us today as well. Watch yourselves. Stay awake. Be on guard. And these are words that Paul repeats quite a few times as well. He repeats in in Ephesians, you know, stand firm in the faith, be on guard, be, stay, or be on guard, stay courageous, stand firm in the faith. Um, Paul also says it in 1 Timothy, where he tells Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy, he tells him to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching, for in doing so he will save himself and others. So this idea of Christians need to be on guard and watch their lives and watch themselves is pretty well written throughout the whole New Testament. And Jesus says that here. In the midst of all of what you're seeing, watch yourselves, let your, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. 
that they will come upon you like a trap. So, in another instance in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul writes, the one who does not work should not eat. This verse has been used for a lot of different things throughout history, but many commentators have linked this verse with the idea that these people believed that the end times were coming really soon, that Jesus' second coming was around the corner, so they stopped working. They just lay around. They said, well, Jesus is coming back. Why should I do anything? Now, whether that's in the text or not is a little bit debated as well, but that's the context of First and Second Thessalonians, so it does make sense. And the idea was that if Jesus is returning next week, then why not just be idle? Why not just wait and just sit there? But the issue is, that's exactly what Jesus is warning against, and that's exactly what Paul's saying not to do in 2 Thessalonians. That's why he's saying, if you're not working, don't give that person food. That's obviously not referring to people who can't work and things like that. He's referring to people who are explicitly idle and choosing not to do anything and expecting others to provide for them. And that's exactly what's occurring in verse 34 here. Jesus is telling them to watch themselves, and they may not be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness. And dissipation is kind of a weird word. It's not a word we use often, and frankly, it appears one time in the New Testament, and it's here. And most of the lexicons I checked described it like the giddiness and the headache caused by drinking wine to excess. So it ends up being a word that's tied to drunkenness, and it's somewhere between a hangover or just that buzzness one gets before being drunk. But either way, it's clearly a sign of the abuse of something being used in excess, whether that's alcohol or, I mean, we could easily expand this out to drug addiction, to substance abuse, to even just the various ways that we find to cope with and abuse things, to ignore the things that are around us, which um, leads to that being distracted by the cares of life part. And yet we have a whole lot of other unhealthy ways, aside from just alcohol, aside from just substance abuse. A lot of other sinful ways that we learn to try to cope with things and distract ourselves when life is hard. And when tragedy hits. I can name various different things that I can think of that our society often turns to. Sometimes it's just the easy thing of checking out and binge watching TV. Other times, you know, a huge epidemic in our society is pornography. People turn to that to check out. And it's harmful and dangerous. And it's these sort of unharmful and sinful actions that being used to cope that Jesus is kind of warning against. This let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life that they come upon you like a trap. So people are told to stay on guard and in a sense be sober minded. And yet, this isn't an uncommon thing that we see in apocalyptic literature. If you think about the book of Joel, we see something similar there. That in the book of Joel, this locust storm is destroying everything. Fire's coming, destroying everything. Nothing's left. The harvest is depleted. And so at some point, Joel in this book says, wake the drunkards from their stupor. And it's interesting because for the drunkards, the wine is all gone. They don't have a choice. They have to stop. The locusts have destroyed the vineyards. And it's, while it's somewhat similar to Joel, Jesus at the same point is giving a preemptive text. In Joel, the calamities are happening. Here, 
Jesus is telling them to be prepared ahead of time. He's telling his disciples not to get bogged down with those things so that they might be prepared for what is coming. Watch yourselves, for if you do not, that day will come upon you like a trap. And in verse 35, verse 35 is another one of those verses that I think gives us a little more clarity or confusion, maybe, in understanding what we do with this part of the text. Verse 35 reads, it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. Well, that's an interesting way to really look at it. Because this just refers to what happened in the conquest of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a somewhat centralized event that didn't happen on the entire earth. And that's what leads me to think that it might be a bit of both. That this text does look back to 70 AD, but it also looks forward to something happening in another time. And that there will be a greater fulfillment that Christ will occur in his second coming. And in verse 36, Jesus gives a similar command to stay awake at all times. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. He tells him to stay awake at all times. Obviously this is figurative. Even Jesus slept. We see that in the gospel, specifically, as he calms the storm, he is sleeping. But yet, it's an idea of being alert, being sober-minded, being aware of what is going to occur. And yet, in this, as opposed to verse 34, Jesus says to watch yourselves, then he gives them something to avoid, but in verse 34, he gives them something to pursue. He gives them a positive command. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he gives them a positive charge to pursue rather than a charge of what they should not do. In 36, he, just settled, he tells his disciples they ought to devote themselves to prayer. To stay awake at all times and pray. Which is interesting because we see something quite similar a page over, really, where Jesus is in the garden immediately before he's being arrested and praying. He's asking his disciples to pray for him as well. And what do they do? They fall asleep. It's interesting that it's, even though Jesus wasn't immediately referring to that moment coming ahead, it's exactly what they don't do a, few, a page later, a few days later, in fact. And yet, as Christians today, we have a wonderful privilege to pray. <clears throat> and in the short time I've been here, something I've seen is this church prays often and well. And I love that. And I cherish this about this church. On Wednesday nights, we have a prayer gathering, a prayer meeting, and we pray for the needs of the church. Even in our service, we have a period of time that is set aside to pray for one another and pray for our needs. And that is an excellent thing that we should do. We should continue in prayer until the Lord comes. And in that praying, to have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So we pray for our own endurance. We pray that we continue on in the faith, but also rejoice in knowing that the Spirit carries us and holds us.
We pray for others that they would continue on and hold to the faith. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 12, Jesus gives a similar command in verse 35 through 37. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. And then they open the door to him at once. When he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. And it's a remarkable picture that Jesus gives in that instance there, where he's telling his servants to stay dressed and ready for action. At the same point, he gives this picture of a servant, of this master who comes and he serves. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. As a man, he came to serve people, not to be served, even though he is truly God and truly man. But in, in the midst of all of this, he empowers us to serve one another, and yet also tells us to stand on guard, to be dressed and ready for action. As I said earlier, and I think it bears repeating, the lens by which the Christian views all of these things, he has said, the lens by which the Christian views the apocalypse is one of hope and not one of despair. And the reason that we have that hope is because of what Jesus has said and promised. Jesus has said that his words are true and they will come to pass. And Jesus has said that we can trust him. And even when we read texts like this, and maybe even today, we, maybe we all leave with a sense of bewilderment. And that's okay, but do not leave with a sense of hopelessness. It's easy to get bogged down with this topic because there's so many opinions. We can get 10 people in a room to talk about this conversation and easily have 15 different opinions. And sometimes it's easier to find passages about the return of Christ, harder to believe than passages about the resurrection and about the incarnation. And let me spell that out for a second. Sometimes it's easier to believe that God became a man and then that God died on a cross and rose again than it is to believe that he's coming again. And that's why I think it's okay to say we don't need to have all of the answers here, but just trust that what Jesus has said is true. For the Christian, there is hope. But for the unbeliever, there is confusion. There is a coming judgment for sins. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus will find that their sins are forgiven and find that his wrath has already been poured out upon Christ on the cross. But for the unbeliever, there is still a judgment to come. Someone has to be judged for sins. Either Christ is judged on the cross, or the sinner will be judged in eternity. And God is glorious in his judgment of sins, for however it's poured out. But for those who place their faith in Christ, there is forgiveness for sins. For Jesus has paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And those who place their faith in him will find forgiveness. But I want to say that in this text, I think I can confidently say the intention that Jesus had for this text is not that we would be confused. And it's not that we would start making charts and maps and anathematizing anyone who doesn't agree. 
But rather the intent is that Jesus has, is to tell us that he is going to return. And in the midst of calamity, we should not despair, but we should trust in him and his words. And that we should be on guard. We should keep a close watch on our lives. And we should make certain that with our lives we are proclaiming and glorifying Christ. I open the service in our call to worship by reading from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a passage where Jesus, excuse me, it's a passage where Daniel has a vision about the Son of Man giving, being given dominion. And in the Gospels, one of the names that Luke uses over and over and over again to describe Jesus, and Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. So Jesus in the Gospels is saying the person about Jesus who Daniel had a vision, Jesus is saying he is that son of man. Jesus is saying that that text where he's given all dominion and all honor and given an everlasting kingdom, that Jesus is that son of man. And that gives us a hope. In that text we read that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. As sure as the Son of Man has risen from the dead, he will also return. And he is and he will reign forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us a marvelous 